Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the new cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do I do stuff at Freethink. I mean, I'm not even gonna let me not oversell it. I mean, it is important. It's consequential. It's really, really fucking good. But I'm not going to oversell it. it for I'm not going to oversell it because you know, whatever. Set expectations yeah. low. Deliver high because I always do, <laughs> and we'll see what happens. I'm delighted to right. be here. It's going to be a great show. I'm joined by a couple of remarkable humans. One of whom, bizarrely, despite the fact that I made a trip all the way across the continent yeah. to come. Yeah to New York City to record yeah. in person with my guys. Right around this table. One of these motherfuckers didn't even make it into the studio and there's a woman to blame, which oh, should not yes. surprise now. you. Yes. Not only yes. a woman to now. blame. <laughs> Matt Welch, editor-at-large Breeze Magazine. We're going to get yes. into it, Matt Welch. Oh, We're going to talk about yeah, which yeah. woman is to blame. Because oh, no. a woman yeah. gotta have it. And uh, Michael Moynihan of Vice News, also yes. here, but not here in the room. I'm the, he's, so, yes. He's I'm the one who's not here. Yeah, babysitting. Well, I mean, first of all, you can't babysit your own child. Well, you. <laughs> I mean, if you know, you're, if I you're keep a huge told deadbeat, that, you can. I keep yeah. getting told that, but because yeah. I, I imagine that is a woman's responsibility uh-huh. to raise a child. Yeah, well, that's child. what I said, and, and apparently that backfired on me tonight. Yeah. So, <laughs> of course, I, I flew in. I, I landed like an hour and a half ago, mm-hmm. and um, I kind of forgot that you were in town because you just don't mean that much to me, Camille. That's yeah. true. And so, um, I, I, I get to. Uh, Joanna's house, see uh, Levy and the rest of it, my daughter, and mm-hmm. uh, she's suited up with, uh, you know, a hat and gloves on and ready to go out the door to meet Matt Welch's wife. Hmm. And so that strands me here. And <laughs> the reason that I am here, just, just, let's just so we're very clear, because you're in town. Yeah. Matt's in town. We have Steve Kornacki at the table. Yeah. I've been waiting for, <laughs> you know, a place at the table with Steve Kornacki. For about 25 years, he's not aware of that. <laughs> yeah. It was when he was at Groton High School, and I was kind of <laughs> lurking around in the back saying, I really want to meet this guy. You're the and Matt's wife, the equations. Matt's wife, the, the you know, Marshall Paytan of, of, uh, of that household. The subscriber to the Patreon. Undermining the fifthum tonight. Yeah. Undermining the fifth. Subscriber. Wow. Well, can I say something about it? She, like she knew we were recording together. That's that's the whole yes. thing. The conspiracy here yep. is that she knew mm-hmm. what was going on. She engineered this to draw yeah. out Joanna. Yeah, fire to keep no, Moynihan totally. from being fire in the room with. And I should I should do the thing because it's, <laughs> we've already said it. Steve Kornacki is in the room with us, ladies and gentlemen. He is recording with the us knack. this evening. The knack and how to get it. The guy, one of one of our favorite people on cable news. One of the only remaining reasons to watch that poisonous medium. And I, I don't. I mean. <laughs> With the exception He's right of next Kanaki. to you. It's really I'm just right saying, next to you. And listen, I'm not taking aim at you any know, I'm the one who's not in the room. I'm saying all Steve's cable right news there. is brain poison. All of it. All of it. Except when yeah. Steve Kornacki is on. When he is on, it's enlightening. Yeah. It's invigorating. Yeah. It's unbelievable, is what I'm saying. I want to know. It's unbelievable. Like the NBA. I want to know. Is the NBA Steve. fantastic? And Don remember? Lemon. Let's just well, add no. Don Lemon to that. This weird moment is about a year ago when, like, the gap was sending Steve pants and like <laughs> all that, like entertainment, the people who actually get paid money in at 30 rock were like, 
Hey, Steve Kornacki, <laughs> come here and I'll, and I'll clean your office. <laughs> doing all this weird shit. Yeah. Is that, are we still in that Very moment? Or I don't think so. Yeah. No, I think that's one of those weird <laughs> pandemic moments yeah. that everybody's sort of like, what were we thinking? <laughs> did, did you, you made it, you made it like a world sexiest man, didn't you? At least one of those things? Yeah, I tell people that's where the real vote fraud was in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying Joe Biden really <laughs> won? <laughs> I, can, I suppose I could believe that. Oh, I, I, if, well, if Steve Kornacki says it, I believe it. That's what I'm trying to tell you people. Yeah. Um, well, Steve, I'm delighted yeah. that you could join us despite the fact that Michael Moynihan couldn't. I'm glad, Matt, I'm Matt you know, that I know, and I know your wife tried it's not my, to keep even yeah. Steve Kornacki from joining us here in the That's studio. That's not true. <laughs> she yeah, could. She would ensure that yeah. none of us made it here. And there'd be no more podcasts, which is crazy that she's trying to undermine us. The actual she's fifth column of the fifth Steve column Kornacki. is Matt Welch's wife. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Who knew all this time? Oh, this my is God. unfair. Well, thanks. Um, thanks, Emmanuel. I have, I have something happened. I have to say about. Uh-oh. I have to I have to actually big up a uh, Patreon subscriber mm. who deserves oh, um, yeah. credit. Um your so-called wife uh, <laughs> does not so <laughs> that fraud so-called um, children terrible so-called yeah your so-called marriage. children so-called your illegal immigrant from france naturalized <laughs> citizen be terrible yeah. if someone dropped a dime on her yeah frenchy yeah we know 20, 20 years later matt finds out she's from <laughs> quebec <laughs> um no i i was i was just in williston north dakota um, oil and gas country. And I mentioned that very briefly on the Patreon. And um, a listener wrote in and said that they're there half the year, uh, but weren't there at, the t- at, at this moment. And so, you know, sad that, um, that uh, she missed me and, and said, you know, we would have hung out she if she was there. And so I, I responded and I said, you know, where does one drink, eat, et cetera, around here? She gives the one place that this is the good place. We went in there, myself and my crew, a camera guy and producer, and uh, at the end of the meal, this very confused waitress came over and said, somebody paid for all of your food. And I said, I'm sorry, what? There's just a bunch of like roughnecks, some oil guys at the thing. <laughs> and apparently they paid for, paid for our food because our uh, patron uh, texted them and said, do you see this guy in the place? Pay for their food and I'll pay it back. The guy who looks like Isn't he's definitely like, oh not working gracious. the oil fields. Like, look around. Who's not I, working the shale? I do. <laughs> yes, I do look like I, I. I look like I'm fracking. All right, I don't know what that means. But, um, but it was. I was doing some horizontal drilling, but uh, and it was very controversial too. I drink it was also your controversial. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that is yes, good. but then I went and talked to these guys at the bar, and yeah. they were. Um, uh, one guy was very drunk, and there's apparently still a lot of money in this industry because um, the woman said, "You know, it's time for you guys to go." And he was like, "No, no, we're going to keep the bar open." To this poor woman behind the bar, and he's like, "No," she's like, "No, you got to go, you got to go." And he, then he bought us drinks, and he's like, "If I give you five hundred dollars, will you keep the bar open?" And she was like, "Oh, what?" God. And he gave her five hundred dollars. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I had, I had like a 7 a.m. call time. So I was like, I got to go now. I'm sorry. You just <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I hope you guys have fun because I'm leaving. But yeah. So thank you to that listener. She knows who she is. Wow. And uh, that was amazing. Amazing. Wow. Amazing. We have great people. Wow. Great we, people. we really do have great people. The best people. You know, and they're good people. So unfortunately, on Matt, many, Matt's not married sides. to a good person. Wow. wow. Yeah. So what I did there. Big, yeah. big supporter of the podcast. A lot podcast. going on. A lot going on. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what she says. Right. You got to prove it, though. I mean, look what's <laughs> happening right now. I'm just saying. 
Put the facts before. I mean, she did make the, the sacrifice of marrying Matt Welch. See, which seems this like is a important. bit of a burden. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now she's taking revenge. Um, so, <laughs> on, the, having, on the miserable thing of being married to Matt Welch, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, having said all of that, mm-hmm. perhaps we yes. should get into the things that we're going to talk about. Get today. Into and, it, I, and I just want to say, you know, Steve. This is a media criticism podcast. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. I've talked about what we do as, you know, reliable sources or one of those other shows where it's actually amazing. But and interesting. And, and we use nunchucks and brass knuckles and all sorts of other stuff. But we're going to play. We didn't take it easy on you tonight. We're not going to interrogate you. We don't have any expectation. You no. can talk nasty about anybody who works in this Mm-mm. space. What we Mm-mm. brought you here for today is to yes. drill into your mind and oh, to boy. get a better mm-hmm. understanding for the political landscape in the country. There's a lot mind. of craziness going on. <laughs> and and we know that you can help us distill the fact from the fiction or the fiction from the fact. I think that actually is better to take the fiction out of the fact so that we can just have the facts and just understand what the <laughs> hell is going on. So we want to talk about up, the like, Virginia election. Like preacher voice too. We, we do. We want to talk. That's just, just my regular voice, Matt. Uh, it's actually racist to suggest it's a preacher yeah, voice. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. We want to talk about the Virginia election because there was a lot of, of consternation about that and a lot of speculation about what might have actually happened there. And it seems like a couple of weeks have gone by and we maybe have a little bit more detail and you can perhaps illuminate some of that, but also just the mood of the country, the, the, Flail, the flagging poll numbers of Joe Biden, these rumors and speculation that I'm hearing about Buttigieg and whether or not he might actually be like the guy pretty soon. There's a lot going on, and we suspect you might be able to illuminate some of this. So we're delighted to have you in the room as as per usual when we get to. No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And if you just want me to take shots at Welch's wife, I'm that is completely. I was going to suggest uh, Stephanie rule <laughs> for some reason, but we can go after our, Matt's wife instead. Our goal at the end of the podcast, you still employed in Matt's, Matt's still Welch, marriage, Matt Welch's marriage on the ropes. That is the goal of this episode of the fifth column. Just to just to put it right right out there. Maybe a way of of uh, putting this is uh, uh, it seems like whenever there's an election, and it's not just Virginia, it was New Jersey, it was Long mm-hmm. Island. There's all kinds yeah. of weird things that are happening. That's true. In November, um, the first couple of days, everyone's freaking out, especially if there's a surprise outcome. Um, and then it seems like we kind of figure out what the exit polls said a month or a year yeah. later even. <laughs> so what is your understanding of like uh, kind of what happened there and how that fits into the normal pendulum swing of presidents losing their, uh, their glow? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's, there's probably two ways of looking at it. Um, you know, if you're a, if you're a Democrat and you want the optimistic take on it, it's where is Biden right now and what just happened in Virginia, New Jersey? Well, Biden is where roughly Bill Clinton was this point, you know, 1993, 94, you know, the Democrats lost Virginia. They actually lost New Jersey, mm-hmm. you know, in 1993, his poll numbers were down in the forties, um, kind of getting to where Barack Obama was in 2009. They lost Virginia. They lost New Jersey. They had that Massachusetts special election where Scott Brown got elected. That was January, 2010. So mm-hmm. yeah, everything looked terrible for Clinton and for Obama at this point. And of course, 94 ended up being this big wipeout for for the Democrats, the Republican Revolution here. Both of them bounced back to win re-election. So it, it does tell you, and it is a, it's a worthwhile cautionary note, at how quickly the political climate can change and how the midterm really is the, the first two years politically 
almost always go bad for the president. The question is just how bad. You know, if you look at it this way, um, since the Great Depression, basically since 1934, after 1934, there have been two midterm elections when the White House Party has gained seats in Congress. They've lost seats in every other one. Mm-hmm. And one so, of those was George W. Bush in 2002. Right. And, he, and, and the other one. In a small number, too. Right. And he was at nearly 70%. It was a year after 9-11. The country was still in that 9-11 mood. The other one was Bill Clinton, 1998. The Republican Congress opened an impeachment inquiry the first week of October 98. The country was against it. Clinton was at 68% approval on Election Day. Democrats gained five seats. Mm. So, like... The optimal outcome is gain five seats. The worst outcome is like lose 65. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the range we're talking about for these midterms. So, I mean, if you're a Democrat, it's like, look, you got to go through this and maybe the political climate changes. But that being said, you know, there there are all sorts of indications here that we just the the story of American politics we've been telling sort of Trump era last five, 10 years or so. um, All of these issues that have been raised about the the durability, the sort of the size of the Democratic coalition. all of those questions, all of those issues have really been reinforced by what we've seen, certainly in Virginia, New Jersey, these other places you're talking about. Talk a little bit about the the kind of uh, uh, the ethnic breakdown of it. Not that I'm personally interested in it, but that's ha- <laughs> right. Like it's not it's not why I'm interested in politics, but politics is interested. Okay, Richard in Spencer is, is, is interested in ethnic breakdowns. From what I are those people deciding the election? From what I understand, uh, basically <laughs> Democrats are losing everywhere. Like the yeah. de- Democrats, you know, the what was the emerging Democratic majority book from Rudy Teixeira, right? Teixeira, yeah. Um, uh, back in the in the uh, the late aughts, um, kind of. There was a determinism about especially Latino vote, like it's always going to be reliable. And we've Mm -hmm. seen in Moynihan, it's done a lot of great reporting down at the border. That ain't happening. And do we see that not happening in in this November thing? Yeah. And and to share, by the way, emerging Democratic majority, he is now sounding the alarm as loud as anyone in Democratic circles about, whoa, we've bought too much. He's essentially saying you've bought way too much into my thesis. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. He's got a really interesting blog. Um, I've got something, the populist patriot or something now. Um, but he isn't a populist. patriot. (laughs) That may not actually be that. And if it's some other blog, I may be sending you somewhere. I don't want to send you (laughs) (laughs) register that blog now. I would just, (laughs) you know, just got indicted. (laughs) Civil jury. Very bad blog. Very big in Charlottesville. (laughs) (laughs) But he's, um, is he sounding the alarm? I mean, he's saying, you know, on, on cultural politics, the Democrats have leaned way too far into the, um, cultural progressivism, progressive cultural activism. They have bought this linkage that, that really doesn't exist between um, progressive cultural activism as a tool of motivating non-white voters. And and that that linkage, I don't think, exists really at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing that Democrats are dealing with. It, it, so if you look at it in Virginia, I think to talk ethnically about it or whatever you want to say, um, I think a couple things happened. Look at it this way. The white vote is split in two groups. White voters with a college degree and white voters without a college degree. And increasingly over the last generation, they've just been voting in totally different ways. And the numbers we're seeing in Virginia have just taken that to a new level. According to the exit poll, you take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, but it's the best thing we have right now. According to the exit poll, McAuliffe won white college educated voters in Virginia by five points. Youngkin won white voters out of college degree by 52 points. Oh, wow. So we are talking about that big of a split. And then, by the way, the, the thing you can layer on top of that that really makes it interesting is I think gender has become a component of this as well, where it's 
white women with a college degree, McAuliffe, per the exit poll at least, McAuliffe actually improved on Joe Biden's showing, 2020 to 2021. White Mm. women with a college degree. White men with a college degree swung pretty significantly away from the Democrats. And then on the other end of it, right, the exit poll in Virginia showed a 72-point difference between white women with a college degree and white women without a college degree. Holy crap. So, I mean, we are talking about the Virginia results showed minimal Republican gains with white voters with a college degree, some, but I would say minimal. What they also showed was that Glenn Youngkin took these massive gains that Donald Trump had already made with blue collar white voters, white voters without college degrees, and he expanded on them. Hmm. And it was it was not assumed that that was going to happen because Glenn Youngkin like kind of culturally fits the Mitt Romney, yeah. Carlisle group. For this sure. is not a, you know, yeah. in your face culture warrior. He got bigger margins in these places than Donald Trump did. And what Donald Trump did was much larger than any other Republican had done. So he took the Trump thing and he built on it in blue collar white Virginia. He made minimal gains. Youngkin did with white college educated voters. And I think, and there's, we can get into it, but there's, I think he made gains with Hispanic voters, but it's tough to put a number on it. Mm -hmm. There's a education component, especially in Virginia, but also to a degree in New Jersey, if you follow some people who've been covering education issues there um, as well. Uh, and or, there was a, a, a poll discussed or uh, this week um, uh, as we're recording, um, talking, we're doing focus groups with the Virginia voters. And a lot of people, yeah. uh, these were Biden voters, Biden Youngkin voters. And there's just a lot of people reiterating um, the schools were closed. I'm pissed off, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> basically. And uh, which was a line of argument that a lot of people treated as a conspiracy theory on the left until November, whatever the day before the election was. <laughs> and now after this, there's a strange new respect for that. Do you, do you see the footprints of that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting too. You mentioned this, this focus group. I think it was third way that did it yeah. in, in Virginia. And I, folks, if you can go find it, it's just interesting to read kind of the, the transcript, the report of, of the thing. I was talking to a, um, a democratic operative in New Jersey who was telling me I wasn't that surprised that Murphy got a scare in New Jersey because the polls weren't showing it, but the focus groups were showing it. And I was mm. thinking of that when I was reading this third way thing, because what the, this this person was telling me was essentially like what you'd hear in the focus groups was basically saying, hey, you can poll something in New Jersey like taxes on the rich. This was a big thing that the millionaires tax, they, they, they uh, Murphy talked about raising it. Murphy had this line in New Jersey where he's like, if you don't like paying higher taxes, you can move to another state. That yeah. was his message to wealthy people in New Jersey. It polls very well. Like if you if you look at any, you know, overwhelming support looks like it's a popular issue. And, and the consultant was telling me in the focus groups, it was not coming back that way. When mm. people were talking about it, they were expressing something different. And that that was true on taxes. That was true on the schools you're mentioning. There was all sorts of frustration with the schools in Jersey. And it's really interesting when you look at the returns in New Jersey, it's very similar to what I'm describing um, in Virginia, South Jersey, which is much more blue collar, um, South Jersey, which is much more sort of non-college white was a tsunami for the Republicans. This is where that, if you saw that Senate president, the state Senate president in New Jersey oh, yeah, lost the, his seat to a guy who spent $150 on his campaign. Yeah. That was South Jersey. But then the reason that Phil Murphy's still the governor of New Jersey, you think of wealthy high college degree concentration, Somerset County, New Jersey, um, yeah. Murphy actually did better this time around than he did last time around. So the wealthy, college-educated, that sort of social class 
did become more liberal, more democratic in New Jersey. The rest of the state went Republican. If there'd been minimal gains for Murphy in Somerset County, he's the governor today. Have we been able to meaningfully differentiate between the school with the schools issue in particular between concern about the schools being closed, as Matt just alluded to, and these broader culture war issues that have become so dominant, this critical race theory stuff that's been talked a lot about a lot by Republicans in particular. I, I thought it was interesting to me. I'm curious what you said. I, I, I didn't, nobody I talked to in New Jersey brought that up, but this wasn't raised the same way in, in New Jersey, but it was in the, the, um, the third way focus group in Virginia. And, and it came up as the way I read it, at least in the, in the report, and you're kind of taking their, their assessment of it was less concerns about literal critical race theory, you know, as you might have Derek Bell or being taught in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I, I read the concerns that were coming through in a focus group, at least in that report as more like, Hmm. I, if I had to translate it, like there's a colorblind ideal I thought we were supposed to believe in. And my mm-hmm. kids are coming back with material that doesn't sound like that at all. And mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. And I don't like it. So that is, I mean, that is kind of consistent with the culture war concerns versus the, the schools are closed and the schools don't really seem to be kind of focused on the right. The things. way that <clears throat> Although I could, I could see how both, both things, those things bleed in like a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the school reopener fanatics who are all my friends now, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who I, uh, I follow, uh, they will point out, and this is consistent with my experience. In fact, my experience is kind of like that stuff predates the school reopening issue. Uh-huh. Um, but that people became aware of this stuff right in a intimate way that they weren't expecting. Right. Um, and well, it's easier all- when, when Debbie is sitting next to you at the kitchen table, you're working and she's doing her coursework and you overhear something. And also just, you, you're just more, did you say Debbie? Yeah. I'm Debbie. <laughs> I'm just picking a random kid name. <laughs> That's you, by the way, when those times and you say, uh, you say, I'm not black, uh, you just proved that you were because you think what? white people are called Debbie. Right, this actually, is literally that's, the, the last time the somebody only, was called Debbie the was the only Debbie. The only Debbie I know is Haitian. No. Thank you very much. Yeah. As, exactly. uh, <laughs> as, as Cheech Marin, you mean the Haitians us. that are concerned about CRT, Debbie, no, Debbie Latouche, as Cheech Marin <laughs> taught us in the great song, Mexican Americans, uh, Mexican Americans. <laughs> Like white girls named Debbie too. <laughs> actual quote from like 1975 when there still were white girls named Debbie. I don't think okay. <laughs> so what, what is all this stuff? Um, you know, it's not enough information and it's just a few races, but everything that happens, um, you know, people are going to run to you, Steve, and, you know, to start tweeting and blogging and writing pieces about what it portends for the Republicans and Donald Trump, particularly in a figure like Youngkin, who's, you know, not a MAGA type, despite the fact that a lot of people um, on the other side of issues tried to portray him that way, which is absolutely not true. Um, it, it, you know, because you see a lot of people of the the kind of older uh, Republicans in the the kind of um, you know Jeb Bush type uh, Republicans saying, "Well, look, you know, we don't need Trump anymore." They keep on saying this that we have to have a guy like Trump. He's the one that galvanizes people. He's the one that pink brings people out to vote. And so he is the future of the party, whether you like him or not. Is that changed in any way just from this kind of limited um, experience in Virginia, New Jersey and other places or Republicans still, you know, knee deep in the Trump? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, to me, it's still an open question because uh, let, use Virginia as an example. When I'm talking about these areas, these these rural um, blue collar, heavily white areas where uh, Youngkin did so well. I'll give you an example. It's a, one county that just on the top, tip of my tongue is Dickinson County, Virginia. It's just tiny, but there's like 
60 of these in Virginia and they add up and you put them all together. And this is why Youngkin's governor in Dickinson County comes to my mind because it's one of these that if you went back, well, first of all, if you went back to like the late 1980s, I think Michael Dukakis, believe it or not, carried it. I mean, this is, it, wow. you could not that long ago, Mondale, Mondale carried uh, almost, excuse me, Dukakis carried West Virginia in, in 1988. I mean, that's the, our politics and, and like Appalachian, <laughs> right. you know, that's blue collar, rural, white Appalachian. <laughs> Lord. Um, it's, 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 it's crazy when you think about it, but um, so these rural kind of blue collar counties in like Appalachian, Virginia, Dickinson County is one of them. So if you went back to 2012, it had switched to Republican by then, but Mitt Romney won it by 24 points mm. in 2012 over Barack mm. Obama. And for Republicans, that was like uncharted territory. Holy cow, 24 points in Dickinson County. Trump comes along in 2016, 2020. He gets it up to 58 points by the time oh, he runs wow. in 2020. Yeah. Youngkin just won it by 61. So, mm. and this is what I saw in county after county. Wow. Trump got Trump won it by 58, Youngkin by 61. Trump won it by 60, Youngkin by 65. That's what we saw in these regions. And and it's when you look at the Romney number and you look it was not automatic to me that Youngkin was going to get what he got. Like Romney was a was a, a vault up. It's a ratchet, right? And like yeah. so that trend is happening. What does that suggest to you about I mean so much of American politics is about voting against what you hate. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that, is that what you're this when I, so when I say it's an open question, this my read on it is that like what Donald Trump did, I think there's, first of all, in the places I'm talking about, there was a, 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 a like of Trump that, that brought out voters. They wanted to vote for Donald Trump. And so that's there. Um, but I think what Donald Trump brought about too, is this dynamic of among every Republican. Now they share this, they've shared it for a long time, but I mean, they really, when you, see the polls and talk to them, they really feel it now. It's the media, it's popular culture, it's every institution's country against us. They mm-hmm. hate us. They are throwing everything that they I think that's more intensely felt now. There's always been a, you know, like look, there were, you know, campaigns to get Dan Rather fired, you know, 30 years ago from conservatives. Sure. But I think it's at a level now that's totally different. And I think that dynamic right now, even with Trump semi off the stage, that dynamic is absolutely still there. But I don't know if Trump were to like if Trump weren't to run in 2024 and were actually to kind of disappear from our politics, I'm not sure that that, that dynamic stays, but the Youngkin thing suggests it could. I mean, DeSantis, who is not super, like, objectively Trumpist, mm. um, but- I mean, isn't he? I mean, the, he's, uh, he doesn't wear Trump in, in his communications at all times, right? Like, uh, he's not- I Yeah, mean, I guess so. Sure. Uh, or maybe, you know, probably because he wants to re- replace Trump and, and doesn't yeah. want to be, you know, somebody who's doing the Trump two step. Yeah. Yeah, do an right. impression of him. I mean, that's so many of the people in the Republican politics are doing bad impressions of Trump. But yeah. um, exactly right. So but he is absolutely consciously tapping into that sense that that like the media that these people are, are against us. He'd like mm-hmm. try. You can't even think, I don't think, about a uh, a national Republican politics. Why? One of the 17 reasons why Jeb Bush is going to be eternally doomed. He doesn't, when he tries to do that, no one believes him. Right? Like you have to do that. That's the, that's the minimum price of, uh, to, uh, to be able to play in Republican politics. Yeah, no, that, what comes at, my best read on Trump by the end was like, I stopped paying attention to most of the poll numbers around Trump. And I, I still don't because it was like, I think there was this, there was this glue that existed that bound kind of, all Republican and Republican leaning voters to Trump in the end, where it was like, 
I think a lot of them, you see this in the polls, a lot of them didn't like him. A lot of them hated the tweets. A lot of them would tell you things like he's a liar. I don't think he tells mm -hmm. the truth. You would hear these inc damning yeah. assessments. And then you looked at the percentage of Republicans who voted for him. And it was higher than any recent Republican nominee. And why was that? And I think it was the heat that he brought on from Democrats, from the media. And I think it was also the degree to which Trump probably changed the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party in response to Donald Trump, this whole thing we talk about, when you, you want to call it the Great Awakening or whatever, this it had already been, you know, kind of marinating before Trump, but it absolutely exploded when Trump got elected. Um, this rapid um, cultural progressivization, for lack of a better term, mm. of, of Democratic politics. I think there's a response to that that then attaches itself to Trump and now to the post-Trump, if you want to call it a post-Trump. Do you, I mean, the same tr thing is true uh, also with the media, right? I mean, it, it is very, very different than when you go back to the mid-1990s and you have these people like, uh, you know, Bob Tyrrell and the American Spectator and doing their Arkansas project and Mena Airport and the Clinton Chronicles videotapes and things like that. There was that kind of thing, and it was still kind of fringy. And of course, technology is different. That changes things. Tweeting changes things. Facebook changes things, etc. But I think that, you know, people really felt what Trump was saying because the media in general, and of course, you know, there's a lot of variation here, but th the hook was baited and they were taking the bait every single time. And, you know, having those things, you know, democracy dies in darkness. We are going to have chirons, uh, lower thirds that just rip people apart before the person on television even opens their mouth and saying, this man is a liar. This man is a liar. There's regardless of whether or not that's true. And in a lot of cases, it was true. But that was unique and that was different. And the number of people who said to me out in Trump land that they actually would tune into CNN in the past. And then all of a sudden CNN, which felt like this kind of neutral arbiter of news mm -hmm. and MSNBC was liberal and Fox was conservative, et cetera. And they knew the lay of the land that it all just felt so aligned against Trump. And Trump almost was like, you know, the genius here, the, the dumb genius that was was pushing this and creating this response in creating the culture war. The culture war is that, you know, the people that lament this stuff are part of the kind of fomenting the culture war by going after Trump every day, literally every day, and saying the things, and I talk about this all the time in the show because it really annoys me, because I kind of liked the idea that somebody would say, so-and-so says without evidence. Okay, if you're going to do it, fine. But let's evenly apply this, and it would actually be fairly interesting, right? That disappeared. Without evidence, I, I would challenge somebody because we have a lot of enterprising uh, listeners who will probably go do this if I tell them to <laughs> do my bidding, people uh, <laughs> go back and look and do like a nexus search for without evidence, uh, you know, in the last two years of the Trump administration and then do it in the past eight, 10 months. You're going to see a very, very big difference. And you cannot get away with saying it's because this administration and these people don't lie as much as Trump. They lie in different ways. I mean, Trump was was pathological. I mean, there's unique in his ability to lie in every single sentence. That said, I think people notice this and people have told me that they notice this and they feel like they're set upon, not in the sense that Hollywood doesn't, you know, talk about them in the right way, which was the 1990s thing, right? And Hollywood, you know, Holly weird, right? <laughs> Remember all that stupid stuff, the left coast and Holly weird. That is kind of hilarious to think about now. Now it's like every time I turn the television on or open the newspaper or whatever, I need to just retreat to my Newsmax because they hate me so much. And the number of people who have said that to me is really kind of astonishing and worrying at this point. I, I, I just 
I hear it too from people just, you know, when I, when I venture out and, and, you know, talk to folks, um, who don't, you know, who aren't, you know, necessarily day-to-day viewers of MSNBC, but I end up in conversations with them for various reasons. I no, I, I hear versions of what you're saying. And one, one thing that I just kind of big picture that I, that I think about is, you know, how did we kind of get here? Two things that pop out to me. Number one is like, think back to the 1990s. It was like, well, the whole phenomenon of cable news mm-hmm. dates only to 1980 with CNN. And CNN was on nobody's radar till the Gulf War in 1991. Mm-hmm. Okay, then you got, you know, Fox News comes along in 1996. And, you know, fair and balanced is the slogan. And everybody said, well, you know, but but they're they're so conservative. And Al said, no, no, you're misunderstanding. I am the balance. Everything else, yeah. you know, is, and MS came along in 96. But of course, MS went through a whole bunch of different you know, versions in the first, right. in the first yeah. 10 years Thomas or so. Carlson. Yeah. Well, it was, um, Alan Keyes, uh, you know, was there for crazy Alan Keyes. There was a show right. named Alan okay. Keyes is making sense. On That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember. Yeah. One of my favorite yeah. things I, I have access <laughs> the to the archives. I can watch these, I can watch these shows from different, different one eras. Of the, one of the weirdest <laughs> things about Alan Keyes and maybe Steve knows this, but I'm not sure you, you two, uh, guys his do. daughter, um, keeping that separate for the moment. Um, yeah, he's tall. Is he tall? tall? He was like oh, six really? foot three. I only know this. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. He no. Look so small. He looks like a not tall man. Really? Yeah. Was, uh, I don't believe. I'm going to fact check this. No. Look it up. He looks like a See, he looks like Emmanuel Lewis with this man. Is he He's tall? not. I would have said five eleven. If you, but I've only seen him on TV. Yeah. I saw him in yeah. person at the. Uh, at you just the saw him making sense. Rep- <laughs> <laughs> making a lot of sense at the Republican presidential debate in Los Angeles, the LA Times in 2000 with. Uh, uh, George W. Bush and I think John McCain was appearing like on a on a television that was up uh, against mm. a wall somewhere. And uh, I was like, "My, how did this guy? He's Damn tall. It. Why isn't it easy to find Alan Keyes' height out by googling racism? It doesn't because come up. people stopped <laughs> caring about Alan Keyes the day that Alan Keyes is making sense went off the air. <laughs> did he, Just so you know, did he like run? Did you, do you remember? Yeah, do you remember? Was, do you know what I get when I when I search for Alan Key and height and I'm looking for dimensions? Can you imagine oh, Alan uh, Keyes, like actual Alan Keyes? Is you, oh, uh, <laughs> like Alan wrenches. Alan Keyes, come on. Yeah. Oh, well, do you remember his daughter came out? And then denounced him in like oh. this really uh, like she, she, she like denounced him against him. Yeah, she came out as gay. And <laughs> oh, you mean you know, like actually came out? I thought you said his daughter yeah, not just, came out. I against thought you were saying him. she came out and denounced him. She came out, comma, and, and then denounced, denounced him. him. Yeah, yeah, I get yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Which actually yeah, makes I sense did. both ways. Yeah, I remember that. That yeah. was that was a but a not surprise. both ways. You know what? I'm gonna reel that back in. Go ahead. No, it's fine. Do what you want, man. No, what? it's fine. I'm going to reel it back in. I'm just going <laughs> to put it, just put a pin in that right there. What? Exactly. What bit? I just. What are you talking about? Come on, it's fine. Come on, man. Come on. It's fine. Come on, Kim. So, one, one thing I want to. Uh, you got the want, trial with Kyle. One thing I want to talk about house. before we turn. Reduces inflation. <laughs> before we turn sharply Kurt to the Biden administration. I want to talk about <laughs> Biden and I want to talk about where his numbers are. I don't know. But I also wanted to talk about turnout a little bit, just specifically, because we were talking about negative partisanship and people being re- uh, motivated to vote um, against the other party. But how big a story is turnout in this most recent election? Because we, we'd we heard a lot, and obviously it's all of this isn't going to manifest itself, but we'd heard a lot about like voter suppression um, over the course of the last couple of months. Um, and we know that in Virginia, some of these things were supposedly going on as well. What is the turnout story appear to be now in 
any of these races that were particularly surprising, or at least the ones that were most talked about. Yeah, it was uh, turnout was up relative to the 2017 Virginia race, which was a high turnout race. Wow. Um, It was lower, relatively speaking, in New Jersey. Uh Um, And I think if there's something particularly concerning Democrats, besides the fact that they almost lost New Jersey, is some of their core areas in New Jersey the turnout was particularly low, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of the the, the uh, urban machines, uh, you know, like a Passaic County around Patterson, um, Hudson County, Essex County. They had low numbers there. But um, you'd expect that to recover in a presidential. In a presidential yeah, you, you would think you'd also think a sitting Democratic governor, you know, would, um, so there was some some consternation about that. But I think overall in Virginia, the turnout it was high for a governor's race. Yeah. Um, and it was it was interesting all day, you know, going back and forth between the two parties on Election Day. You were getting Republicans were calling in a panic because, holy cow, we're hearing that the, you know, the turnout is massive in Fairfax County, which is the big right outside Washington, D.C. core mm-hmm. Democratic area. And then Democrats are calling it's and they're saying, County you know, well. yeah, that whole, you know, yeah. D.C. suburb area. So Republicans all day were panicking that it was really high turnout there. And it was high turnout there. And then Democrats were panicking all day that, wow, hey, in southwest Virginia, we're seeing like, you know, around Roanoke or something, there's huge turnout. And there was there as well. They were also right. I think it was a little higher, probably relatively in the Republican areas. But overall, it was just it's it's consistent with American politics 2016 to the present, which is intense, intense interest in these elections. Mm. Turnout levels in the 2020 election, the 2018 midterms, now the 2021 Virginia governor's race that are just, you know, much higher than we've, we've normally seen. Steve, are you aware of any like correlation between like economic uncertainty and dissatisfaction and voter turnout? Is there a very clear pattern with respect to that? Because when I anytime I see like poll numbers that suggest or yeah, poll numbers that suggest that people are particularly interested in politics, like it makes me a little nervous about just the state of affairs in the country. Is that generally a good indicator? Yeah, I don't know if it's I, I don't know if a, it's a necessarily things aren't great. Well, for 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 turnout, I don't think it's necessarily economic because in 2018, some of the feelings on the economy were not that negative. Mm-hmm. And we had 114 million people vote in the 2018 midterm elections. And relatively Which speaking, the highest in a century. Right? Yeah, normal is about 80 to 90. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we were that was not just high. That was astronomical. The 2016 presidential had been 130, mm-hmm. and then you got 114 in the midterm, which was just astounding. And then you got 160 in the 2020 presidential. So, I mean, we're just at levels, right? This is like my whole youth, my whole first three, four decades of life was spent with people bemoaning how in the old days people turned out and voted in elections, and now they don't anymore. Now they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, assessments of the economy weren't that bad in 2018. They're, they're a lot worse right now. But overall, I think it's the... There's two things. It's it's you ask people just the broader question about the direction of the country. It's very negative. That predates COVID. It's extremely negative right now. And also now in this era of intense polarization, when one party gets control, the other party like 100 percent feels they are on the verge of the country's on the verge of extinction. And they get that that feeling of urgency. And and, and it just motivates the turnout. The most important election of our life. Every single time. I mean, I I think you can act. You can absolutely take it as a sign of negative health. Mm-hmm. Um, when there's a huge turnout election in the United States of America, it people are feeling really bad about something, or they feel bad about each other, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's a huge, uh, uh, you know, counterexample to that. Yeah, probably not. The price of Bitcoin is not what they're concerned about, generally speaking. What I'm saying, buy Bitcoin. Is our just the ad <laughs> that we do for crypto? <laughs> we, we do, do one ads? of those per episode. <laughs> Um, you don't buy you don't buy Bitcoin though. I told you to. I'm, I will never let you forget this. No, I, did, I told I did. you to I buy the dip at, at seventeen thousand. Still You're waiting like, seventeen thousand. Still waiting it's for it to expensive. dip. It's going to dip. 
It's going to dip back below 17. Um, you heard it here first, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so, before, we leave, uh, before we leave uh, uh, this election and, and some of those trends, curious if crime shows up, right? Because it's, it's definitely mm. in the news right now. We've had two really high-profile uh, uh, trials that just came out. Uh, the Arbery uh, uh, case came out today. Why are you gesturing at me? Yeah, Because uh, you're in the room, unlike Michael Moynihan, because he's been exiled yeah. by yeah. events. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's trying to say is because Steve Cornell. He called Cornack his wife in a black. Okay, let's just I'm not, be honest. I'm not sure he isn't. I don't. I'm, I'm yeah. mixed up now. No, I mean he's from Groton, Massachusetts. He vacations in Vermont. He's on MSNBC. I mean, clearly, he's his new rap album is going to come out next week. Um, but I, we see pictures of like crazy looting in Camille's hometown or wherever the hell he lives now uh, mm-hmm. these days. Um, and like, man, uh, that is crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's Walnut Creek. Uh, yeah. Uh, kind of. It's like 40 minutes from my house. And uh, there's a sense uh, among uh, especially right of center commentators that there's been kind <laughs> of um, a, a backlash against the defund the police movements to the extent that that exists. Um, but, you know, it's and, and by it's, the way, it's Matt to, to interject something yeah. here about an hour and a half ago, um, two NYPD cops were shot in uh, in the Bronx. Oh shit! Oh, really? Um, yeah, which is you know, it was a rare occurrence a while ago. But um, yeah. yeah, I don't. I, I just saw it pop up on uh, New York Times uh, news alert. So, uh, and, so yeah, and I mean that perception is, up, is very real. The murder rate is up everywhere for the yep. most part. Um, and uh, uh, shooting. But hey, hey, Matt, murder rates were higher in the nineties. Okay, I'm aware of that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Thanks. It's not like we're in the nineties. Important. Yeah. Nothing to worry. I mean, Matt, come on. More people died like in Dresden in 1945 <laughs> than died in New York this year. Is this showing on. up as a concern? I didn't hear it a lot as a concern in talking about New Jersey and Virginia, especially compared to schools and other things like that. Is this showing up in some way? Yeah, it, it wasn't in, you didn't really see it in Virginia and in New Jersey. Um, you had the, um, uh, the referendum in Minneapolis, right. mm-hmm. you know, to to uh, get rid of the police, essentially, you know, the defund referendum. It failed. It was 5842. Mm-hmm. Um, read into that what you will. I mean, I, I, I know mm-hmm. the folks who are really alarmed by defund the police have trumpeted, hey, you know, if it went down to defeat. It was double digits. It, 42% of the population after everything is voted to defund it still. I, I, I don't think that's insignificant. Um, I, I know there were some stats, I think, that came out in Philadelphia today about the number of homicides where it's just it's it's soaring yeah. year over year. But of course, Philadelphia, the Democratic establishment early this year made a concerted effort to get Larry Krasner, the district attorney out like Ed Rendell yeah. got involved, could not yep. take him out in the Democratic. I wasn't even close. I think he won like two to one. Oh. So you've got that. You know, on the other hand, you take a look at some of the smaller races on Election Day in November, DA races in Nassau County, New York, Long Island. Um you, you take a look at the 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 problems Democrats ran into there unexpectedly, and what was the central issue that the Republican made in that race? It was the bail reform law in New York yeah. State. Mm-hmm. So I you know I, I think you got the stirrings of something there. Um, and, and you have Eric Adams, who's sounding very different notes yeah. about that, having mm-hmm. won the New York uh, mayoral Democratic primary, and now won the mayor's office. Right, and, I, and Adams is a, is a and I, I think there was this. I, I noticed there was this story. As you see, about a week or two ago, he met with some leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement in New York, and it was a very contentious meeting. And he won it, both tabloids that day. I, you know what? My take on Adams is it's I, he is trying to be, I don't know if it's intentional, he is trying to be the mayor for the New York Post and not the New York Times. 
and his yeah, opponents yeah. in the primary were going for the New York Times and not the New York Post. And I, it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon because I haven't seen a Democrat talking that way in New York City of his prominence for a while now. And it's scrambling the policy. He, it, it really, Ed, exactly. The outer borough. Exactly. Yeah, the outer borough. You know? and, and, you know, it's funny. He runs, you know, a, a kind of an election against Curtis Sliwa and ends up being Curtis Sliwa. I mean, he, he literally <laughs> he sounds Sliwa, like Curtis right? Sliwa. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, wow, that is that is incredible. But I mean, so far, it's it's been it's been fairly interesting. And yeah, and, and to Matt's point is like I do the, the weather van for me is when I look every morning at the, the, the Times and the, the Post and the Daily News next to each other. You know, in like four times, you know, every six months, you'll have them have the exact same headline, which is my favorite thing. But yeah, they both seem to be on on board uh, with Eric Adams, which, you know, I think tells you something about what's what the temperature is in this city. Because the, the, the idea was, of course, all of these, you know, who is the woman that AOC endorsed? What was her name? Good God, I can't remember. I can't believe it. Oh, Maya um, Wiley. That's how I forget it. Mm, yeah, exactly. SNBC Maya contributor. Yeah. She had yeah well, like, look, I've been on uh, a bunch. Yeah. Yeah, don't talk about MSNBC. Steve's right there. I'm Did you notice that? Uh, we were we were just, just, he just stated a fact. No, he didn't. No, he said <laughs> what? If, he said that Cambodian uh, Pol Pot supporting <laughs> channel is. You did. Oh, did I mishear that? Nice I think I miss. I think I'm, I'm sorry. I might have misheard that because I'm not in the room right now yeah. because of your horrible wife. <laughs> <laughs> How can we get this so she never hears this episode? I don't think that's possible. Uh, she needs to hear this. Oh, <laughs> the rest of the fifth. Of you need well. the reason she needs. She you need to get a divorce. That's just I'm trying to <laughs> provoke that. Um, but what are we, Steve? I mean, it, you know, I was up on Capitol Hill the other day and I was um, talking to uh, Ro Khanna and had a nice conversation with him. Um, but, you know, how is it that um, a year ago, and this is particularly amongst the kind of media class, it, every conversation, every story was about some new progressive Democrat and the fact that the party was lurching towards, and, you know, Joe Biden, too, was, you know, definitely you know, saying during during the primaries that he was he was the Democratic Party, meaning he was the sort of centrist guy. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, mm -hmm. um, he's he does lurch a lot to the left. But it doesn't seem it seems like the power that they are given and it is attributed to them by the media doesn't really match real life at this point. Am I wrong in thinking that? Like, where are the great victories for all of these progressive Democrats? No, and it's I, it's it's interesting because I think we've had a number of these moments now where there's sort of a the the the, the um, consensus. The, how do you put it? The the kind of progressive social media consensus clashes with an election mm, and yeah. and often loses. I, mean, I just gave you the, the Krasner in Philadelphia. There are counterexamples where you can find you the, know, a the blue mayor island. Yeah. Well, and then the mayor of Buffalo overturned right, turned the tables on the uh, on the challenger. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, I think when you're talking, the, the broader the electorate gets, I put it that way, the broader the electorate gets, um, the, the, the progressive um, kind of consensus that's formed through social media. And I just I, I keep saying social media, not because I'm like a cranky old man, but because like my read on politics yeah. is like it's yeah, yeah maybe I am there. But um, <laughs> I, it's it's such a it has such a powerful role. This is true in both parties of of setting the agenda, of setting the terms of discussion, of setting sort of the script that you're going to hear from either party. 
Um, I, I think I noticed this, and I wasn't the only one that noticed this in the, in the 2020 Democratic primaries. I mean, I noticed I noticed Republicans doing this. I noticed Democrats doing this. I noticed Democratic candidates in 2020. It felt to me like they were trying to. They'd be asked a question in a debate or an interview, and they would be trying to read. How does this play on social? What's the what's the cue from social media? Yeah. I'm thinking. You know, I'm thinking of specifically here when Kamala Harris was asked about uh, banning uh, private health insurance, mm-hmm. and she didn't seem to have an answer right away. Then she said yes. Mm-hmm. And then after a night of hearing from her advisors that this was probably the worst political move she could make, she said no. <laughs> but but the instinct, yeah. where did the instinct come from? Because I saw the yeah. instinct a number of times with her. Um, you know, I, I, I felt like I saw that instinct with Elizabeth Warren a number of times. I felt like I saw that instinct with Pete Buttigieg a number of times. Didn't really see it with Joe Biden himself, but you've seen it, I think, with people around Joe Biden. You've certainly seen, I mean, Trump would crowdsource material. I, I'm not trying to make this a Democrats only thing because I think you've, you've absolutely see this with, with with Republicans as well. But I just think it's the thing that's kind of taken over our politics. And it's the thing that day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour and second to second, it's the it's become the source of feedback, the main source of feedback in a lot of cases that people in our politics get. I would um, I mean, I might you see it with Biden. Go ahead, Matt. Sorry. Just edit that. I think Buttigieg, as he ran, was less about that compared to, let's say, Beto O'Rourke. Uh, I remember writing a a, a thing with a headline. Now running again for governor. Now running now again, my God, Texas. he's going to get drubbed. Um, but the you know, almost the, feel bad for the guy. The, the only, woke only primary is over, and everybody lost. Like everybody who tried to run woke in the Democratic primary got stomped, got curb stomped. It wasn't close. Kirsten Gillibrand, who was like kind of an interesting centrist about some things, so was Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke has, used to have at least some kind of interesting kind of libertarian or, or unorthodox impulses. All those people just said, zip, uh, Julian Castro too. Like all these people, whatever, like uh, kind of centristy, uh, uh, Cory Booker as well, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like sitting on his hands when it comes to school vouchers and a bunch of other stuff. Like they all went woke. They all did nothing. The people who tried to go the wokest all lost, all lost, which makes it more curious even that like on uh, Biden's, literal first day i think if not first day yeah mm-hmm. he signed in one of his first executive orders was a government-wide uh equity focus we're going to have every single department do like an an equity you know through check to see how we're doing see um if uh if there are, are inequal outcomes about this and that and the other like it's really mm-hmm. like people who work in the federal government who i know they're Lives have changed because of this, because there's audits that are happening that weren't happening before. It's odd and curious that the guy who ran as the person who wasn't doing that, right? Like I'm the I'm the person who basically conservative black yeah, voters sure. in South Carolina are voting for to tell the wokes go to go to hell. I'm still going to adopt all of these things. Uh, it's what to what do you attribute that kind of um, policy response after the political response seemed to be that he was the one not doing. Yeah. I, again, I just, I think the feedback mechanisms in our politics have just changed so much. And I, it's, I, I'll give you an example here. And this is like, I, I people will tear you to shreds for it. So I'll, I'll tear you to shreds. You know what I make a note. We'll, we'll do this clip for yeah. the two minute yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah this is the part where I email you in two days. And say, no. <laughs> no, too late. <laughs> Lock it day. The, the thing so. that, that, that Bill Clinton did when he ran in, um, one of the things. Oh, no, he's, that, that, he's yeah. going to the sister soldier. Right. He's doing it. And <laughs> yeah, I think it's it. misunderstood. Yeah. I think this sister soldier moment is misunderstood in our politics. Mm. Because if you remember it, the essential calculation that Bill Clinton made, I, it gets sold now. When, when you hear the, the sister soldier story moment talked about now, it's that 
Bill Clinton was serving up black voters that Bill Clinton was trying to make an example of, embarrass you. There were a couple things going on, but the essential thing that Bill Clinton understood then politically, I think, was something that that could be true today as well. And he was saying that there's a lot more common ground. He felt that there was a lot more common ground between, say, blue collar black voters and blue collar white voters in the same way you might say today around some of these issues. So the, the specific issue with Sister Soldier in 92 was a Sister Soldier had said, you know, what if we had a day and you know, we have black people killing black people? What if we had a day when you just kill white people? Essentially is, is, is what she had said. She said she was in character. When she, the point is that Clinton took that line and he recognized that it was going to sound wrong to everybody. Mm-hmm. It was going to sound wrong to white people, but it was also going to sound wrong to black people. And he went to Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. That's right. That's where he said it. And, right. Yeah. And, and now yeah. there was a dynamic here. Jesse Jackson, for the last two elections, Mondale of 84, Dukakis 88, had held them, you know, Jesse Jackson was seen as the key to the black vote in 84 and 88. Mondale Dukakis knew it. They begged Jackson. Jackson knew they were begging him. He did what anybody with leverage would do. He just made them keep begging. They look terrible. Clinton said, I'm not going to let that happen. So Clinton decided he was going to use this to basically, this was going to be a dare to Jesse Jackson. It was going to be like, I'm going to come to the Rainbow Coalition convention where you think I'm showing up to beg for your endorsement. And I'm going to condemn Sister Soldier, who you just invited to speak here last night. And I'm going to condemn her on the grounds that what she said is unreasonable. And what she says is at odds with the goal that all of us, black, white, and everyone in the Rainbow Coalition is pushing for. And you, Jesse Jackson, will then have a choice. You can then say, well, you know what? You're right. Or you can fight me. And those are the terms you're fighting me on. You're telling me that somehow what she says is reasonable. And it's, it's, I tell people, you know, go back and watch the speech mm-hmm. because Clinton delivers the speech and there's 50 people behind him, 50 people on the executive council of the Rainbow Coalition. They clap when he says it. Mm-hmm. They don't take it as an attack. They give him a standing ovation when it's over. When it ends, he turns around and he's hugging people behind him. And then Jesse Jackson goes behind the curtain. Now, it's, now the Clinton, this, was, uh, this, was, this, this was, this was, this was, this was, this was Bill Clinton. His campaign had that told motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> His campaign had told the press, Hey, look out for this moment. I mean, this was oh, not yeah. a, okay. But the essential thing that Clinton understood was, and, and what this all builds toward is Jackson then goes to war with Clinton for a week and, they take a poll after a week of black voters and Clinton's standing with black voters had improved. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's Clinton's standing the and, and first I, black president of the United <laughs> States of America. Yeah. yeah. For real. Yeah. I, I, I'm still waiting for that holiday uh, <laughs> where we get to kill white people for one day. Uh, I don't know if you're suggesting a holiday. Are you making a, a random, list over there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> a, random, a random day. Everyone's going to be driving no, but, the East <laughs> egg. <laughs> Yeah, in my uh, 1930s roadster. Just <laughs> go on the record, Sam, against this. Uh, personally, um, I don't like it. No, look, it is it is the funny thing. It's the classic thing that you know you play to the base and the the primary, and then you play to the to the American people in the general. And now it's just that you play to Twitter, and that is, I mean, I've seen that so so much, and it's 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 kind of um, uh, frustrating because it is so disconnected. And and I've mentioned that. Hidden Tribes uh, study that was done, I think, at University of Pennsylvania. And the New York Times had actually did a very good visualization of it, of where, um, you know, Democrats are in the real world and where they are on Twitter. And just putting this on the kind of continuum of left and right. Mm. And they're obviously very, very far to the left of the average Democratic voter. But to, yeah, to Matt's point, is it is astonishing to me that you need somebody from that Clinton 
era. And it's not, you know, Camille and I were just talking about how we have to get um, Donna Brazil, James Carville, and George Stephanopoulos on the show all at once. Because I think they all kind of think the same thing. And it's what Carville is saying publicly, you know, and the, the, and I know every time I do this, I sound like Foghorn Leghorn, but he is what he does. When he's like talking about the faculty lounge, (laughs) (laughs) he's like, we don't can't talk like people in the faculty lounge. And it's like, there's a lot of truth to that. Jackson, that's uh, the weird. I don't. No, which one, Matt? Uh, sister Soldier is a brilliant rapper. She's terrible. Too like a gold do, album, or even yeah, like she, silver, maybe tin. Do, do, yeah, does anyone remember her I, music? I don't. I can't name a single song. Not one. Uh, she's a novelist now, though. I, I would have yeah. known. I would know. <laughs> I'm telling you, no. I, I would know if there is any hits. I would be able to yeah. tell you. There's no yeah, hits. Would have been loving it. When you wrote a, a lot of books, though, right? Yeah, she's she like romance yeah. novels now about killing yeah. white people. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's the romance of depends yeah, on who killing white people. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, no. But I, that's the thing, Steve, is that I don't kind of get. Is it seems rather obvious, and it's to Matt's point, and you reiterated what what I think is true of this this idea that that's that's the people that the, they're they're playing to, and that's how they're formulating a lot of these answers. You seem like how's this going to play on? On, on Twitter, um, you know, and of course the people like, and, and you said to both sides is also true. Marjorie Taylor Greene right. in AOC. I don't know what these people actually accomplish. I mean, we tend to forget that they mm. go to Capitol Hill to accomplish things rather than just a grandstand, which is what both of them seem to do all the time. But why rods. is it that, that the actual party hierarchy at this point doesn't see the obvious writing on the wall and says, well, look, we allowed you guys to take over the party's Twitter account for four years, basically. <laughs> it was like a little takeover that you guys got to do. It didn't really work out like we thought it was going to work out. So how about we kind of go back a let's take a few steps backwards toward, I mean, you see it obviously in the election. People were saying that to Matt's point when, when Biden's um, results in South Carolina, et cetera. Like, why is that not taken as, you know, the direction that the party, I get the kind of confusion on the Republicans side with Trump. I mean, there's a lot of mixed data here. It seems pretty straightforward that that kind of politics is not going to be a winning strategy nationally for Democrats. Well, I think it's it, it's more straightforward nationally than it is if you if you just start breaking down the average Democrat trying to win. Ele- I mean, one of the consequences yeah. of the, the, the rise in polarization and tribalism and all of this stuff is that we have what they call the great sort, right? The big sort, excuse me, where, you know, the metropolitan areas are increasingly monolithically yeah. democratic and everything else is Republican. Mm. So if you're a Democrat who lives in one of the blue islands of America, it is going to work for you. It's how you're going to raise money. It's how you're going to get a, a ton of traction on social media, which you're going to leverage to get media attention. It's how you're going to get elected. Um, and and I, I think the reality for Democrats is more. I mean, there was a great stat. Um I'm trying to remember it exactly here. Essentially, it was that Michael Dukakis in losing a massive landslide in 1988 geographically won more terrain than Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Wow. Um, and as we were just talking about, like Appalachia would still vote Democratic. You know, it was. Um, you're, a, you're a real Dukakis revisionist. Don't you, <laughs> just, listen, it's the Massachusetts. Know, so you're it's from the Massachusetts, Massachusetts yeah. roots here, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah he's probably like wandering around Brookline <laughs> saying, where's Steve? This, this is Dukakis's time of year. He gets a story in the Boston Globe every Thanksgiving because he, he collects the turkey right. carcasses. That's, that's correct. He says yes. it makes great yeah. stew. I, wait, what? And he could have been our president. <laughs> Just wait, imagine it. Wait a second, Massholes. Don't let that. What? 
Are he used to, about? he used to, his thing is, he actually, he got so much media attention for this, he had to ask people to stop, but yeah. he for years would tell yeah. people, bring your, <laughs> bring your turkey carcasses to my doorstep in what Brookline. What the fuck? Because yeah. I'm going to use it mm-hmm. to make soup for the next, you know, year. And he got yeah. deluged with, you know, turkey carcasses one year, yeah. more than he could handle. And he had to plead for people to stop bringing <laughs> Why? So he's a, he's a frugal Sully, man. let's go over to Dukakis's house. <laughs> the turkey carcass. Was there a point in American history where we could have just said everything east of the Hudson River? Just like, no. Nah. <laughs> like, no. Nah. You're, you're like Southern Quebec. Like, do, it, do your maple syrup. Do your turkey you, you bones. Do, do your Bernie Sanders. You do realize that you are waving the red flag to the bulls from Massachusetts, that if you want us to just go crazy and start listing all the amazing contributions that Massachusetts and New oh, England no. in general oh, no. have made to American culture, American political culture, Here we go. I'm happy to do it. But, oh, you know, I know, it's, uh, Matt, I know it's not Long Beach. <laughs> I know it's not the LBC. Thank you. Thank it's you. always good when your Look, city has an he's acronym. All, he's all hip um, Yeah. Great. Go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, we have like my hometown, for instance, Concord, we have Mark you know, Mark. Uh, Hawthorne, uh, Thoreau, <laughs> you have Snoop Dogg. I, I mean, I get that there's a I competition win. here. I'm I'm fun, that's, actually, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> yes, Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Uh, only, uh, we've got Bobby Gritch. You got some like fucking <laughs> asshole yeah, yeah. mustache by a lake. Yeah. Come on, you. man. Like, yeah, I, I would. Know. I would. If, I would, if, I would if only Emerson tra- had killed somebody and then got off, <laughs> <laughs> I would happily trade Emerson for Snoop. Yes. I'm just saying. The mind on fire. Gin and oh. juice. <laughs> got Warren G. Got a bunch of guns. Yeah. People named Adams. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. Steve, I wanted. I wanted to 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 go back to Biden. We were talking earlier about approval numbers and stuff, and and you mentioned that the approval numbers not so crazy, not so out of whack. What do you crazy. what do you imagine is is driving them down now? Um, seventy five percent of folks in polls say they think the country's going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, is it just COVID stuff? Eighty percent say they don't think we're going back to normal pre COVID normal anytime soon. Mm-hmm. For the first time in the most recent round of polling, Biden his strength in polling had been COVID for the first five six months of his presidency. Mm. He's now underwater, Especially even on those, COVID. Those magical Biden vaccines. <laughs> I mean, it's it's um, more disapproved than approved now on COVID. So, I, you know, it's it's tough to diagnose it exactly. And I also think it's there's a whole debate I think that going on right now in the um, sort of you know pundit world, whatever you want to call it, um, mm-hmm. about what what triggered it. Because if you look at a um, a trend line of Biden's approval rating. The moment he goes underwater, his disapproval exceeds his approval for the first time is the week of Afghanistan mm. and it's never recovered. It's, it's gotten a little bit worse and it's just, it's been, it's been underwater ever since. So uniformly bad reporting. And also the, the administration really did seem to just mis mismanage, not just the withdrawal itself, but the response to it publicly, the, the media response right. was just bizarre. I think that's right. Like people magically yeah. on vacation who you would see all the time is fixtures. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just sort of turns out that they're unavailable to comment on the situation. It's just very strange. Yeah, no, I wonder, like, is it how is it because I've seen some people saying, hey, this is because the country feels like we lost a war and they're holding against Biden. Or then you can I, I sort of think yeah, back I to I think back to W and Katrina, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think he hit a similar moment in 2005, mm-hmm. um, late summer, early fall 2005, when Katrina played out and his numbers went south and never recovered. And I think you presidency's reached this moment where it's sort of like everyone's smelling blood. 
and politically. Mm. And, and I, and I feel at least in, in our, you know, for the moment, that's what happened with Afghanistan. I think there yeah. was, I mean, we could, we, we talk about the media and it's like, it, it, it always, it's like, what, what exactly are we talking about when we say the media? Because I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of opinion in media, but there is still a lot of news media in media. And yeah. I think the tenor of the news media coverage around Trump, excuse me, around Trump, about, around Biden changed, not just in relationship to Afghanistan, but in oh, yeah. relationship to everything. And, and it was a triggering event in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. It was I, uniformly bad. I wonder, I mean, the yeah. WS stuff and Katrina was also, uh, Katrina was an excuse for people to launder their sense of guilt about supporting the Iraq war too. Yeah. Like, they were fatigued with Bush. It, it had been six years. Like mm-hmm. every president at some point you get, you get sick of him. Even Trump, you know, Trump's numbers were pretty bad at the end. They were never good, um, but they were awful at the end. They're around 30% or something like that. Um, this is his first year. This is the nine months. And I look at the support among independents. You know, when he started off his uh, support rating among the Gallup Pew uh, definition of independence, which is more of a, a thick chunk of 30 or 40% of people who self-describe when asked, how do you, you know, uh, characterize your politics, regardless of who you vote for, will call themselves independents. It was 61% at the beginning. It's 34 now. I mean, that's tw- that's a just a straight down. And mm-hmm. I, I, my thesis, hypothesis, I should say, is that um, independents who never liked Donald Trump, except maybe a little bit on Election Day in 2016 by like a percentage point, um, but never liked him during his presidency and got sick of him. They're like, OK, cool. Biden is the vehicle uh, with which we will smite Trump, who we're bummed out about. Um, and so that being done, <laughs> they weren't necessarily ready to support five trillion dollars worth of new gigantic bills or however he handled X, Y and Z. And I think a lot of people are befuddled with that. That plus covid, which is everyone feels bummed out that we're now seeing yet again, like mm-hmm. a fourth or fifth wave or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just depressing on some level, mm-hmm. regardless of whether you blame him in general. So it makes you kind of feel bad. And yeah. then inflation is up. I mean, isn't it? It's it's kind of a very simple thing in the sense that we always try to to uh, put our own ideas about something like Afghanistan onto the, the sort of general public's thinking about it. I don't think anyone is thinking about whether or not it was America lost a war, or we should have stayed there, or if we needed a troop surge, or what happened to Hamid Karzai, or whatever. No one cares about that stuff. <laughs> there was those people that you mentioned, Matt, and so many people that I spoke to that were just exhausted with the the feeling of a general chaos and incompetence of the Trump government, particularly vis-a-vis COVID, et cetera. And the adults were coming uh, back to the White House. And then what happens with Afghanistan is just, is just the sort of optics of it is people who just do not have a handle on something. There's just a, a certain amount of chaos and it's incompetence. If you see, if seem incompetent, your poll numbers are going to take it up. People aren't terribly complicated about these things. I mean, you ask them, they, it's just, it seems like there's some measure of incompetence going on here and foreign policy is a big, big deal. We don't, they're not, they're not thinking about this is emboldening China, emboldening China to invade Taiwan or something. It's just a general feeling. And that, you know, people often overstate, I think, you know, what motivates people to, to give the thumbs down to a president. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, Steve, if you've got any, any thoughts on that? Rob? No, I, I just, to me, it's the, the, the big long-term variables, obviously with Biden are just, the economy and COVID um, 
we, we talk about how the, 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 the midterm dynamics work against the president's party almost no matter what. Mm-hmm. So, okay, yeah. is there going to be some dramatic turnaround in COVID over the next year? Is there going to be a dramatic mm-hmm. turnaround in the economy over the next year? If there were both of those things, maybe we, we could be talking about a midterm environment that would look kind of ahistorical. But then I, I think the bigger picture question is just, right, the, there's the pattern of plenty of presidents have had brutal first two years politically. Mm-hmm. I, I said Clinton. Mm-hmm. I said Obama. You could add Ronald Reagan yeah, to that absolutely. list. You know, Ronald the, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Reagan was the interesting thing is like age isn't what it used to be. Ronald Reagan came to the presidency at age 70 and everybody assumed he was a one term president because, oh, my God, he's, you couldn't run for reelection at 73 years old. That was the assumption in, you know, through in, into 1983 and especially after the 82 midterm when the Republicans got got crushed. Um, he obviously did run. The economy turned around completely. Um, you know, they finally wrung the inflation out. The unemployment rate came down. Growth hit. I mean, a 49 state landslide. We don't live in a country where you're going to have 49 state landslides anymore. But, you know, it, is it is it inconceivable to me that, you know, the economy could turn around significantly and COVID could turn around significantly over the next three years and that Joe Biden at age 82 could be in position by virtue of that? To win re-election, it's not it's not inconceivable. Um, you know, I I just that's that's the you know historically the 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 we've seen some of the worst midterm drubbings turn into re-elections, mm-hmm. and we've seen some of the most tame midterms. You know, George H. W. Bush lost seven seats in 1990 and then got thrown out with 38 percent of the vote in in 1992. We've seen some of the tamest midterms, um, you know, turn into one-term presidencies. I got a question about media, if we don't mind. Uh, jumping away from uh, the presidential politics for a second, second, just because you mentioned previously like the role and the rise of cable news and not putting you uh, on the spot uh, about any of this in your own network, but I see reporting. No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> you know, he does work in cable news. Just so you know. I'm, not sure. I'm not sure. He like, he exists. He's got his own Kornacki camp for fuck's sake. That's, that's like a special thing. Yeah, it's true. Who that's why I'm thank you for reminding uh, me. I always forget that thing is there. On night. Like, yeah. Sometimes Ooh. people yeah. notice. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, anyways. Uh, no, I see that there's periodic uh, stories. Um, there's one now in uh, regarding CNN. Apparently, the whoever owns CNN this week, um, so <laughs> one of the guys is like, "We're going to go back to hard news reporting in the old in the old way of doing it." And um, my God, I mean, the three of us uh, uh, the regulars in the fifth column, the, when we watch CNN, which is very rarely, it is kind of like actually shocking. The degree it is sh- it's actually shocking. It's really shocking. Like it, I remember, sh- I'm Cooper like I was literally like, shocked. I'm like a good newsman. <laughs> I feel you know? like I should weigh in and also suggest that it is shocking. It's shocking, it indeed shocking. Um, anyway, so it that- is the most shocking thing I've ever seen. In my life. <laughs> it's like literally, it's actually it's almost yeah. as shocking as the shocker. Not yeah, so, well, silk the shocker. At any silk rate. the shocker. His masterpiece, brother. There are periodic like yeah. oh, we're gonna get back to basics kind of thing. Uh, mm. I wonder if, like, looking at it, like, for, as a dispassionate observer, which you're not, but, like, you're capable of of, of being, um, is that unrealistic? Is there something about the economics of cable news, do you think, right now, that make it so that, you know, those of us who are old enough, which is not Camille, but maybe Moynihan and definitely me, we me- remember when CNN was the AP of cable, right? Like, it, like, told us what was going on. Mm. It, it became a thing in the Gulf War because – they told us what was going on as much as they could during the Gulf War. And Bernard Shaw had that just great baritone. And so it was going to be all right. Um, Peter Arnett, who knows what he was doing. Um, but like, 
is that uh, is that nostalgia for a time that can't come back because the economics of the thing, whether in terms of audience or of the cost of delivery are different? Yeah, I, I think of the evolution, right? I mean, what was revolutionary about cable news? It was that, oh, wow, I don't have to make sure I'm in front of my television at 6.30 p.m. Yeah. to watch my one of the three broadcast networks for 22 minutes. It was now I can turn it on. And remember, they had there was also there was CNN and then the companion channel was CNN Headline News, mm-hmm. which was they taped a 30 yeah, oh minute God. newscast that just ran on rotation 24 seven. Get me started about Lynn Vaughn. But Lynn Vaughn. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, so you are old enough. You know. Yeah. No, I remember headline. He, well, I had. <laughs> so yeah. so that it was revolutionary that you could get that kind of news broadcast network news quality coverage basically any time of the day. OK. How has the world changed since then? The Internet, social media, um, Twitter, um, the New York Times, a major story happens and the New York Times has its write up available Mm -hmm. within an hour. Yeah. And anybody who cares can either get it through the New York Times site or through Facebook or through Twitter or through anywhere. So I think the thing that was revolutionary about cable news in the 1980s and the 1990s has changed. And so what is, you know, one of the things that cable news offers, and I mean, this is true of, it's true of Fox, it's it's, it's true of MSNBC. I mean, our, our prime time coverage in MSNBC, I'm not spilling any secrets. We say it. This, these are perspective shows. Mm-hmm. You're getting opinions on, on the day's news. Um, you're getting somebody's perspective on the day's news. And I, I think what you're saying about CNN is interesting because my own just, you know, outside observer here looking at CNN, I think that's what they've discovered mm-hmm. in the last few years. I think they've, they were, they always avoided the idea of perspective shows. The closest thing they came for their first, I'm going to say 35 years of existence was crossfire. And it was Pat Buchanan and Michael Kinsley or Tom Braden or whoever it was, but they made sure they had a Democrat and they had a Republican and it was equal time. And that was, that was CNN's little 30 minute dipping of their toe into mm-hmm. partisan warfare every night. Otherwise it was, Bernie Shaw or Wolf Blitzer, and I'm going to give you the news right down the middle. And now you turn on CNN and, you know, Chris Cuomo's an opinion show, right? Yeah. Don Lemon's an opinion show. Mm-hmm. I think Anderson Cooper, I've, I've you know, Very I can't much. say I watch it every night, but I, I see a lot more perspective in that show. And I think that's the thing that you, you look at primetime on cable news. That's the thing that, that, that given the evolution of the media, they've discovered they need to have. Is it? I mean, this is something that was discovered, 60 Minutes discovered it in the 1970s um, with the point counterpoint segment that they did with James Kilpatrick and that essentially became crossfire. I mean, that was, I mean, James Kilpatrick, who I think was, was uh, Richmond. Uh, what was the picture? Yeah. Richmond, Richmond right. With the Shanna Alex, with the Shanna Alexander. Yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, and, and that was the, I mean, but the thing is, is that this is, this is a very easy thing to figure out. I mean, look at the circulation numbers of the nation magazine in 2004 and 2003. I mean, they go through the roof because it's, they're in opposition. The same thing is true during the Obama years for people like National Review and at the time of the Weekly Standard, etc. Stuff goes through the roof. The problem is, is that they don't know what to do when the other side changes, right? I mean, what happens in, in you know, publishing, it goes, it goes back and forth and they just kind of, you know, become more of the cheerleading magazine for the people on their own side and it's not as exciting, etc. But the thing that you see in CNN now is that... You could be mistaken for thinking that Donald Trump is still president. Is January sixth was the greatest thing that ever happened to these people because it's just constant coverage of it, and it's a constant thing that you can still get exercised about while not talking about what's going on in in the White House or going on, you know, in uh, on Capitol Hill. 
you know, the, 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 it's an amazing thing to watch people who have had enormous numbers, enormous cable news numbers uh, during the last four insane years of Donald Trump trying to talk about inflation and to tell you why it's not really that big of a deal. And you're just, you're looking at it wrong, by the way, when you're trying to fill up your F-150 and it now costs $175 or something and like, ah, you don't, you don't get it. Or my, my friend, Evan McMorris Santoro, who did a, the story for CNN and about this woman who said she has 12 gallons of milk or something for all, his, all our kids. And the, it, it was just, you would have thought that he denied the Holocaust. The number of people that came out and were like, holy shit, this is unbelievable. This lying about the economy. And it's like, I don't know where these people live, but it's really, really interesting to watch them try to pivot when Donald Trump is gone, because they had it so easy for four years. I mean, it was slow pitch softball for four years. I mean, the, the man said something every day, every half an hour where you could actually spend an, a whole day talking about it. You know, when he did the little extension on the map, you know, when he redrew oh the God, thing, yeah, the that was amazing. It was amazing. And it was like 48 days of coverage on CNN. It was, I think they're still talking about it. I don't know. But honestly, I just want to call them and be like, let me talk to Jeff Zucker. I don't know if he's still there. Maybe he doesn't work there anymore. Um, whoever's running CNN now and just tell them like, Guys, I have a newspaper from January 20th, around then. It, it, it shows, it's a fact, that another guy is president. And you can talk about the other stuff now. And like, no, 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 but, but before we were making so much money when we talked about that crazy guy. So maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene, talk about her a little bit. January 6th, maybe talk about that a little bit. Or the culture war stuff, um, which it, it's... It, uh, to Matt's point, I mean, the incentive structure, the financial incentive structure is completely wrong if you're trying to get, you know, sort of calm, even keeled, accurate, quote unquote, news. Do you think that there's not a market for that? For like a news channel to be like a, like a non perspective news channel to be on cable news? Mm. Well, no, I mean, I think like like an MSNBC, just to speak for my own, you know, network here, you know, we we mark off if you're watching MSNBC at, you know, um, prime time hours, you're getting a perspective show. But I, I, I will tell you, we have great reporting. If you watch, you know, if you're flipping the channel during the day um, and you're watching some of our, our, our hours during the day, um, it's a, it's a different experience. Um and, you know, the Trump one that, that, that Moyen is talking about, I think is, is interesting because, you know, I, I wonder how to deal with this because we're in a different situation right now. Um, every other former president in my lifetime, uh, and I'm making sure I get this right, I guess the technical exception here would be Gerald Ford in 1980, um, has not been a prospective candidate for a future presidential election mm. they've gone off mm -hmm. into retirement mm -hmm. and, and, and generally um, yeah. like kind of swore off politics correct there's We're there's even interested right. in commenting on everything. right we won't and even I mean, talk about it donald yeah. trump just weighed in on yeah. what probably the biggest story carter was used week. as like an emissary abroad a lot in, mm -hmm. during the clinton times right he wasn't ever seen as a threat yeah. and yeah. then he even became like this rogue force a little bit in, yeah, in democratic right. politics yeah. but that's yeah. that's a whole other thing I was, I was at the 2008 democratic convention in denver and they had to acknowledge Carter as a former president and that he was at his like low ebb in, in, in like status in the Democratic Party. And they were so scared. He came out onto the stage in Denver and I was watching this. 
the podium was lowered into the floor as he just in case he got any ideas and wanted to speak and he just waved to the crowd and kept walking I said I've never seen I've never seen anything like that is he carrying a Palestinian flag get him off the stage well you remember that was I mean that was I think that was you know Carter's you know kind of like he had the most distance from the Democratic establishment at that point but um, but Trump's Trump's it's look and it's also it's tough to gauge exactly from my standpoint what's going on with Trump because he clearly has a lot to say and his ability to say it has been a little bit the Facebook stuff, the Twitter stuff has been crippled. Sure. It's tough for me to measure. But when you take a poll on on the Republican side right now mm-hmm. and you look at where he stands, I, I see these polls that it drives me crazy, by the way. If you're going to take a poll of the Republican race in 2024, please do not poll both Donald Trump Sr. and Donald Trump Jr. because they're not <laughs> running against each other. So yeah. in my mind, I just merged the Trump <laughs> Jr. and Trump cool. Sr. But they're running at cool. about 60 percent when you combine the two of them together. So I, to me, Melania that's like, Ivanka you know, doing, though. And yeah, they haven't put her in. Yeah. And Melania, two, Melania is never more than about 20 or 20. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, like DeSantis might be at 12% or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I saw Christy at 2% last week, you know. Christy thinks he's running. Um, yeah, so cute. yeah, he's he's out there. You know? <laughs> he really thinks he's running. He's like, I'm triangulating. Look at me over here. Triangulating about it. Fucking I'm going to talk tough again. Remember we, get, we, we should have a, we should have Olivia the on now that he's uh, denounced Olivia Nuzzi by name. Oh, no, has no. he? Did he? Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh man, he's like I'm not I'm not okay. here to respond to people like Olivia Nuzzi. Oh, shots fired! It felt like yeah. <laughs> it felt like, you know she's also from New Jersey, by the way. She has she can she she knows of what she speaks. She, so yeah, well she knows that addition. Um, yeah. No, that's a good idea. Actually, we should do that. Um, well, look, we've, we've, we've held you for a while and we started a little bit late too. So I don't want to, I don't want to push much further. Um, I feel a butt coming. Well, I mean, I just want to create oh, a little man, bit of space. It feels be... like we haven't touched on all of the things yet. Uh-oh. So I just want to. He's going to talk about Kanye or Kyle Rittenhouse like or something minute for warning. Hours. <laughs> No, that's like the 15 minute warning, maybe the 10 minute warning. I'm just throwing it out there. All right. I'm well, what is this? No, what, like, go ahead, people. What happens well. after the warning? I'm just, I, well, we, uh, we have to get out of here in a little bit. So I'm just putting uh, it out there. I thought you were, okay. No, I don't. Just, you see, you guys horn? think I have like a trap set. I don't have a trap yeah, yeah, set. Yeah, totally. No. Yeah. I think you do. What is the trap? <laughs> Spring the trap. Come All right. On. All right, Kornacki, who's your favorite rapper? <laughs> <laughs> who's the best rapper alive is the question. Have you listened yeah. to Donda? Have you listened to Certified Lover Boy? You know what's funny? I actually, <laughs> I've been wondering if I should buy tickets to the show in LA um, that uh, Kanye is putting on. Because Kanye, did I tell you that, Kanye and, and did Drake I tell you have like made friends. Well, no, only because you guys brought it up. You guys started talking about uh-huh. this and I'm still trying to figure out if I should buy tickets because there's still some available on Ticketmaster. We have a priest tickets. in the room. Ask him. That's what I'm saying. So I, I asked if he prefers Donda or Certified yes. Lover Boy. That is the question. Yeah. After I, the hour. Yeah. I have no idea. He doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't believe yeah. it. I don't believe it for us. Steve, uh, Steve the correct answer is Mike Dukakis. I my spot. I suspect it looks a lot like my daughter's. Um, <laughs> Can we guess what's on Kornacki's spot? Not, not much since about 1975. <laughs> oh, wow. Already Steve sounding Steve like is, my daughter's, actually. Yes. I just introduced <laughs> Leah to Michael McDonald, who she loves. Yeah. Although James Taylor is her her current favorite, it's the it's the smiling wow. face. Wow, she always that's amazing. She, just, she loves um, it. 
I went into like the other room. No? Yeah. Because I'm supposed to be paying attention to my daughter. Yeah. And I want to show you something. Uh-oh. What's that? You had to go check on her? You know, because I, because, you know, because of what Matt did. Um, <laughs> yeah. I went in, I went into the room. I don't know if you can see this. She's on her computer, right? Yeah. She, she's, okay. yeah. I'm going to zoom in on what she's doing. On oh, computer. Oh. I'm not, I'm not joking. She's 10 years old. Can you see what she was doing on her computer? She's looking, is that Alex Jones? I can't see. It's pixelated. <laughs> H-I-C- Hi, Hick. Oh, Hitch. Oh, oh wow. That's nice. nice. And then it says, and then it says a biography of Christopher Hitch. Wow. That's She's nice. She's in the other room writing, writing a biography of Christopher Hitch. That is so great. I, I have no idea where this came from. <laughs> That's what I went in. <laughs> I'm not joking. I can, war I can mon- literally. God hating warmonger. Good conditioning there. There's <laughs> uh, something about Islamo fascism. I said, you this? And she said, no, it's, it's about right. Um, <laughs> so yeah that's what i'm that's what i'm dealing with see so, well anyway so you, uh, what i'm hearing in that is a thank you emmanuel for allowing <laughs> me to bond more with my daughter no she's you do realize i just said she's in the other room by herself right? <laughs> and she's so she's so bored and going so crazy that she's writing biographies of neoconservatives so um or trots depending on what time period i mean there'll be a trot period a neocon period um um yeah, yeah, I think. That, well, I, I did want to talk know. a little bit more about the media um, comp st- stuff that we were talking about a moment ago, and just the like the opinion journalism that seems to be like winning the day in many respects. We know that that's what moves papers um, and downloads for the New York Times and various other publications. That more than the hard news, and in much the same way, the situation you were describing, Steve, is that on cable it is opinion that is kind of dominant and the thing that actually boost, boast, boosts the numbers. I, I similarly wonder if there isn't an appetite for something else. I also wonder about this thing that was described as like a reckoning for the national news media, the various stories that were pretty prominent that people seem to get meaningfully wrong in important respects. And it's clear that like trust in media is down. We've seen that in the polls for years and years and years. I know that we had, um, I, I don't remember if it was Gallup or someone who just did another one. And it's like, um, similarly, like, uh, as low as they've ever been for like the second time or something like that. I don't see those numbers recovering. It also doesn't really seem like Americans appetites for like bad news about the other team is really going any place. So I don't, I don't know that there's a question there. I'm somewhat pessimistic. I also imagine that there really have to be new models that come into the the media ecosystem that give people a place where they can find details about important stories to get a better sense about what is true and what isn't true so that they can make informed decisions about the world in the current media environment that we live in. Like I suppose what actually what I'm actually hoping happens and again, this is not a question that's just me pontificating here. But what I'm hoping happens is that people will soon associate fast, quick, immediate, instant news with almost certainly untrustworthy, <laughs> which, which means that while these other mediums that we're, we're very accustomed to will continue to be prominent, important in some way, shape, or form, at a minimum, people will view them with appropriate skepticism and say, okay, well, I have something Initially, I know that I'm supposed to believe that white lash is what drove the electoral outcome, but I should probably wait for a month or so until Steve sits down with the guys from the fifth and then I can really understand 
what might actually be going on under the hood. Well, one thing to think about, Camille, is that what you just said right now could be Jay Rosen 15 years ago, could be a Washington Post, you know, could be Bill Kovach, uh, however you pronounce his last name, uh, in 1995. Mm. This is what uh, the newspaper or the news establishment was saying, like, you know, the the hyperspeed of the internet, Matt Drudge, is corrupting everything. We have to, like, not be uh, so beholden to trying to get it first, if that means getting it wrong. We need to take our time and do the right thing. This was the kind of uh, conservative, not politically, um, but temperamentally reaction to a newly 24 hour news cycle who all, you know, they all hated cable news too, but they hated the internet, especially for that. Um, and the problem with their uh, analysis uh, at the time, in my opinion, was that they were under, under discounting, um, the extent to which their own papers weren't getting it right either. They were being mm-hmm. neither timely nor did by the time they got around to it, were they right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that was a problem and that um, a lot of creative people got in there fast. So I'm, I'm basically accusing you of being a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first time I've heard that one. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I suppose I, I, can, it, it was, I can almost accept that flag. But my my concern though is that I'm not just saying that it's not just that they're they're like doing a not so great job. It's that they're doing a not so great job. They've been flagged for it, and it's not clear that people are adjusting their perspective on things. And what I'm what I'm who, saying who are the people? Sorry, the just people, like the, readers, consumers yeah, yeah. of media. My my aspiration would be for them to demand something better it's not clear that that's happening because the appetite for content about those people that you hate that presumes the worst possible motives of them. And that feeds into whatever presumptions you have about those bad people. like seems to be crowding out the demand that what's here is like sober and well-sourced and believable that the, the truthiness of these stories is durable doesn't actually matter. It seems that the interest is the interest in these negative narratives is substantially high. And the curiosity about how true these narratives actually are is fleeting. So it's a demand side problem and which, uh, of which I agree, but there's also a proliferation of places that are, you know, and we could be described as one of them, but the sort of Substack revolution could be described as a bunch of people went indie and yeah, sure, many of them are also like finding new people to hate. Maybe it's the people that they hate the most is the media or whoever in, sure. in politics, or maybe they just kind of don't fit exactly. And that's the selling proposition. And there's an audience for the misfits that is not e- easily apparent in the audience numbers of these sort of legacy institutions. Yeah. But I also don't know how to think about the the differentials here. I mean, when we talk about like the the target demo for a cable news show, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of people who are watching like in the target demo, the most important shows at the most important hours of the day. But when we talk about like content creators online, we talk about subscriptions to like a Glenn Greenwald or Barry Weiss Substack, both people who have been on the podcast. So I just mentioned them randomly. Like the numbers are pretty high. They're strong. When we talk about podcast downloads for some of the most popular commentary podcasts on the planet, those numbers are really strong. They more than rival 
like the cable talk shows. Like they nearly rival the subscription numbers of the most important newspapers in the country. Like it seems to me that get more in subscription revenue. Yeah. Things have changed in important ways. And it's interesting that the kind of information ecosystem and the things that are having the most influence in our politics, for example, like they don't seem to be shifting quite as much as I would have expected. Um, And maybe that's just, it's just a matter of time. But I don't know. Yeah, I, there's a couple of things here. I mean, I think that one of the interesting things is the success of the Washington Post. Um, obviously, they had the resources of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, which actually gave them a pretty interesting um, uh, infrastructure solution. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, especially if you're a, a Amazon Prime subscriber, they push you to it. It's been very helpful to their subscriptions, but it's actually a great newspaper. I mean, there's a lot of things that I that I think they get wrong, but they're just generally a good newspaper. The New York Times. And its news reporting is also very good and has also been doing quite well. That, to answer a sort of earlier question, I think there is an appetite for that stuff. And I think that, you know, people get exhausted. People get exhausted. People talking about like anti-woke stuff, right? I mean, I get exhausted by it. Um, I get exhausted by, uh, you know, things on, on every side. But I think the thing that's really been kind of disconcerting is that the younger people that are coming into the media do actually have a different set of values. They do view things differently. I've experienced this a million times. People who believe that certain topics shouldn't be discussed, shouldn't ever be aired. The um, and I've I remember talking to Matt about this. Is that the replacement of the verb uh, report with platform? Mm-hmm. I'm reporting on somebody, and like, well, you can't platform that person. And when I say, you know, my response is always, "How do you know that they're a shitty person? Because somebody platformed them." You heard them talk and you said, oh, that's a shitty person, right? And, and th- like, th- this has changed in a, a really, really stark way. And I think that one of the things that you notice is that people, you know, question like, oh, it's a, the old kind of right wing saw or something that the media um, has a liberal bias. I think that's sort of increasingly clear, right? I don't think anyone really disputes that now. And I think one of the great examples of this is um, the attack the other day in, in Wisconsin. And I don't think there's no evidence at all that this guy did this for any political reason. And I think that the coverage has been uh, respectably restrained. Mm -hmm. But it's not that respectable. Because all you have to do is look back at Jared Loeffner. And you have some weird, dubious connection to the horrible Sarah Palin having a mailer that has what a a, a target site on it or something and somehow this numerology you know nut ball is political and everyone's having this political conversation and we're talking about a guy here who has been arrested who if you look at his facebook page or look at his social media has said all sorts of things about jews about black lives matter but all this stuff that if the situation was reversed we would be you know airing all this stuff and saying look look i mean remember this happened in atlanta I mean, there was a there was a sheriff, the guy in the town where the Atlanta killings were, had like a T-shirt or something like it was I can't remember, like a Blue Lives Matter or something like that. Mm. And they said, look, this is why it's not being treated as a hate crime. This was the, the Asian women that were killed because this guy in the police force posted this on his. I mean, this is how far we got down the line to kind of prove some sort of political motive. And despite the fact that there's a lot of things. And again, I think this is the right way of covering it. We don't have any evidence that this guy did this for for political reasons. Now, it is very curious. It's in Wisconsin. The Rittenhouse thing just happened. The guy's um, rap career, his lyrics, his social media postings are very suggestive. 
but no one's really making that connection. And someone pointed out the other day that, um, or yesterday that it was off the cover of, uh, the newspaper, uh, the, what's it called? The Sentinel, um, in Milwaukee mm. off the cover. It wasn't even on the cover. Wow. That this tragedy that happened, somebody, I think somebody, one of the kids died again today. Was this another kid that died today? It's the eighth or ninth person. Horrible stuff. But I think it's pretty amazing that it's because of the, shall we say, profile of the person who has been arrested that this stuff is treated in a very different way. If you have a, like some example that is so clear, like right now, of something being treated in such a different way, because if it turns out that the stuff is true, it doesn't kind of look good for their side. There's no other way of thinking about this. One cannot look at this and say, oh, they're just decided today that they're going to be restrained about their political coverage of this stuff. Whereas, you know, the Rittenhouse stuff that we've talked kind of ad nauseum about is that, you know, we still hear people, including the president, uh, calling this dopey kid a white nationalist. Good God. I mean, some evidence would be would be helpful to, you know, really further fucking up the kid's life. But I find this. We, he, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's just ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Everybody's acting. But on the, but like on the other side of this, this Moynihan, and, and not to drag this out, the Aubrey case hasn't received nearly as much attention as the Rittenhouse case, which is interesting. Yeah, because they don't care about justice, right? They care about injustice and they care about how one responds to injustice. Go out in the streets, do something about it. Let's march. When the system works as it's supposed to work, then you have to give credit to the system. Mm. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to say the system actually worked. It only is worthwhile if you say, here's an example of the system being in its DNA, um, biased, mm. racist, unfair to people. So it doesn't really surprise me. And, you know, as far as from what I can tell, and I followed the case a little bit, that seems to be the right judgment. That that yeah. was like, yeah, that that that's good. Three yeah, people going it, to jail, and they all should go to jail. I, I kind of had a similar response to I the mean, story because it, it was it's one of those circumstances when you saw it unfold, you had some inclination as to what happened there and what yeah. seemed really really wrong. Um, and pursuing some guy because you think maybe he might have done something with guns, yeah. jumping in your truck, with a gun. And chasing him down, and then he ends yeah. up dead. This is not yeah. a good and situation you, for you. And do you leak the video? Because you're super <laughs> yeah. smart. It's not a good situation for you. I yeah. wonder if, if like the vast majority or like a, a clear majority of Americans who paid enough attention to either case to have an opinion mm-hmm. think, yeah, juries, juries did fine in both cases. Yeah, I'm wondering um, about that. I don't and, know. Um, and that most are not exercised about it. It's not like the fundamental thing that when they woke up in the morning, mm-hmm. that was the thing that they cared about the most. Um, and that, you know, just as, you know, we kind of talk about it to the environment that we're in, it's a, always a small percentage of people who are kind of frothing in the communication areas who are you know, egging each other on to have strong opinions about all of these things. Um, I just wonder about all of that. Like maybe the thing that we are mistaking for uh, a constant, you know, hyper polarized life or death rhetoric is not being experienced by the vast majority of people. They're mm-hmm. like, don't even no, know what we're talking it's not. about right no, now. They're, they're concerned about schools. It, it, they're concerned about the it, economy. It, it, yes. It, it, <laughs> they're concerned about you know other why things this, that actually <laughs> impact their lives. Yeah. The, the, the incredible thing about this rhetoric, and there's something kind of unique to it. I and mean, you can find a lot of examples of it in the 1980s and nineties and everything, but it's from a different, different sort of fringe of people. It's kind of a, Chomskyite thing on on one side and maybe a Bill Bennett thing on the other side. But the, the conversation is this. We're having a conversation about this. And I said this on the Patreon. I don't care about 
Kyle Rittenhouse. I don't care about the case. It has, I don't think it has any material impact on anything that I think, believe the country, et cetera. But the problem is, is that when you have these conversations and the reason they become the focus of so much conversation and every media outlet is talking about it, every single one, it's not just cable news people, it's the New York Times, it's the Boston Globe, it's all of the AP Reuters are doing it too. It's because you get to talk about this case. And when you talk about it, you're talking about America. You're talking about society. This is, you know, evidence that this guy got away with it. This evidence that this guy didn't get away with it. And that shows that X, huge thing then, right? That's when mm-hmm. you fill in the Mad Lib is that shows you that America is blank. That is a uniquely kind of Nicole Hannah Jonesy sort of conversation that we're having now, right? It's everything is, is some sort of referendum on whether the American experiment is a good thing or a bad thing. Now, that's a bit overplaying it, of course, but there's a lot of that conversation is that, see, doesn't that show you that the American justice system is like, well, no, he's been put on trial and it's a jury. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, why are we having this conversation? Because we get to say big grand things about America and about America's failings. And I, I just, it's just boring. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to go home now. I'm actually at home. You're at home. We should, well, yeah, we should probably <laughs> wrap up soon. Some pie. Because yeah. Steve cannot talk about this stuff. No, I this, see is, this is the thing. <laughs> no, we've done it. Seething. We've got these. <laughs> he's, in fact, we have our own Kornacki cam inside <laughs> exactly the studio. Right. And he's yes. sleeping yes. from What it. we it's wanted weird. to do was create exactly <laughs> the <laughs> circumstance that we've seen Steve these in These so reactionary many times. fucking <laughs> nutbags, and I'm associated with this. Best to keep my mouth shut. I haven't heard of this trial you're talking about. <laughs> and when they came for Steve Kornacki, I said nothing. Yeah. And when Steve Kornacki said nothing, we kicked him off the show. <laughs> well, Steve, I, Sorry, I mean, Steve. Unless, unless you've got some closing thoughts, I, I just want to wrap up by saying some very nice things about you. At least yeah. I, I hope they, they come across as nice. I mean them in a nice way. You're one of the good ones, Steve. This is why we, we like you. We like having you on. Just informative interesting one of the good white thoughtful <laughs> that whites is a, the... unacceptable yeah. that's thank you matt thank you for correcting him <laughs> um no we appreciate you stopping by um as you do occasionally um this has been uh, number three number three all the things that i hoped it would be is number it number three it's not it i might I be number two was it number three? I think I did a remote one with you during the pandemic, actually. Yeah. 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 Something before, that's right. Yeah. It's number three. Well, it's I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, yeah. I appreciate having me on. I appreciate the wine. It was a good good yeah, conversation. Try to get you a little drunk. You know. You know loosen you up. Yeah. Loosen you up. <laughs> yeah. It's important. Because Camille's idea was, like he's like a fucking FSB agent, was to get you a little lubricated on the wine, and then you'd tell Keith Olbermann stories from back in the day. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> You, uh, sir, <laughs> drank the wine. Well, now I'm just waiting for were the mics the to be off. <laughs> yeah, were, were you the one early that said, you know, uh, Keith, I love it. I love the tone. We just need you to address people as sir every five minutes. <laughs> Particularly the ones you really hate and you actually don't think are sirs like George W. Bush. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, Steve. Very much. Thank you, we sir. love having Appreciate you. you. Appreciate it, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Bye. 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 We we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The Fifth Column.